Hello and welcome to episode 64 of the Large Format Photography Podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by Andrew Bartram and Eric Mathy. Hello, Andrew. Hello. Hello, Eric. Holy crap. Hi, guys. It's been ages. Um, in fact, I can tell you how long it's been because uh, the last episode went out on January the 16th. Holy and it's halfway through the summer in the Northern Hemisphere, at least, anyway. So, uh, yeah, good to be back. Um, so if we do one more show this year, then we're almost regular, aren't we, I suppose? Um, I mean, if, if regular means <laughs> six months. <laughs> well, well, I think we've, we've, we've all had uh, our challenges this year, um, which is uh, the main reason uh, why we've, uh, well, it's taken us over six months to actually get back on the air again. Um, so hopefully uh, it, will, it won't be as long uh, before the next episode. Um, and now, at this part of the podcast, I usually thank uh, the guests that we had from the previous episode. And uh, seeing that was almost me, um, I'm not going to thank myself. Actually, Simon, thanks for coming on. Actually, and thanks for coming on this time. Dude, like Simon's back. He yeah. did 100% for the shows in 2023. Exactly. And I, and I intend to be back as well, which is, which is good news. Um, well, for some people at least, anyway. <laughs> um, um, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to do this slightly differently, uh, because we usually do this at the end of the show. Um, but uh, I'm going to thank those people that placed a donation uh, with us uh, via Coffee, um, coffee.com. Um, and we're on there is the large format photography podcast. And apparently we can be found, although it's not very easy. But there you go. So that's a challenge in itself. Um, so the first person I want to thank, and this was on the 18th of January, was Andy. And it says, keep it, keep it up, guys. Love the show. My go-to track for developing. Excellent. Um, and next one on the 18th of January was Larry H. And he says, uh, thanks for your enjoyable podcasts. It's good to have Simon back. Well, it's good to be back too. Thank you very much, Larry. Um, then on the 23rd of Jan, uh, we had Nick Marshall, and he says, Happy New Year. Uh, just checking, have you considered contacting conflict, conflict cameras? Oh, there's more. Actually, I've only got one line here. This this could be bad if there's a whole paragraph of stuff. Here you go. Con, conflict cameras on as a guest, and then there's an a Instagram link, and uh, conflict cameras is down as, uh, well, conflict cameras on Instagram. Okay, well, we'll talk about that guy. Oh, we we know. Do you, to, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, conflict cameras, Eric? Yeah, he's. Um, I, I don't know his actual like what he does, you know, day job or whatever. But he's been working really, really hard for the last couple of years, um, and he's getting super close to building an autofocus four by five. Ah, and that means it's well. a, yeah. a, a hand carry. Yeah, you know, I follow him. Now I know you're five. talking about now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and he's getting yeah. super close. And the amount of work he's put into this, like really highly technical work, is I'm gonna do a swear word here. Sorry, is genius. Like, it's, it they look amazing. Um, just for the photojournalism, like the style work that I like to do, I'm just like, ooh, hello, Clevis. Like they, they look great, um, and I'm super excited for them. Like the. Yeah, at the code, he's, he's slinging code in there, 3D printing parts, um, just all sorts of stuff. They look bloody fantastic. Well, that that sounds that sounds like something we really need to look into that one a bit more. Then, yeah, um, yeah for sure. Okay, next one is uh, Daniel Sandlund. Uh, always excellent. 
Uh, here's hoping for many new episodes in 2023. Well, <laughs> 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 there, are two as many. Well, there you go. We're, 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 trying. Hope, we're trying. Hope is a wonderful thing. Yeah, it is. But uh, yeah, we, we do think we're going to do more. Um, okay. And then finally, uh, in May, uh, Jim Hobart, um, uh, thanks for entertaining and educational banter. Uh, new large format photographer here. Uh, using the MPP 5x4 Mark 7, uh, like one of your colleagues. Ooh. Ooh, no. We, 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 might, we might have talked about you. Probably, probably you, Simon. You're the only one likely oh, to have yeah, the MPP. Yeah, you're the MPP guy. Yeah. I, th- I think, yeah, I've got a micropress rather, rather than a, a Mark 4, uh, Mark, well, Mark 7. Um, because that's the technical camera. I have the press camera with the focal plane shutter. But the MPP... Mark five is a Mark seven is an excellent camera. Can Does, doesn't uh, okay. Isn't the MPP Mark seven and Mark eight? Don't they both have focal plane shutters? No. Oh, but they are excellent cameras. I mean, the Mark the Mark eight is meant to be absolutely outstanding, and I'm sure that the Mark seven is pretty damn good too. So, which ones have the focal plane shutters in? Oh, you might have just said that, but I was I I, I, I did. Was watching the Grand Prix. I'll, I'll, I'll say it again. Uh, it's the Micro Press. Um, right. What was that one you were going to send me, or you keep threatening to send me? That's a mini. That's a speed, that's a speed graphic. I mean, the, the uh, MicroPress yeah. is is a. I wouldn't call it a rip off, but it probably. I suppose you could. Go ahead. You fine. probably could do. Um, but it, it's 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 like a, a it's a speed graphic, but heavier. Um, it's got more metal in it, um, and it's got a different uh, it's got a different rangefinder system in there in there as well. Uh, not that I use mine, um, but I think the actual shutter mechanism i think they made it under license from from Graf, from graflex i believe because i believe it's exactly the same um which actually you know what that that brings me on to this, this is where we sort of would normally talk about what we've been up to i'm, hang, I'm hang getting, on hang on hang, hang on have you thanked everybody yet before you go off yes on, yes that, that, was that was everybody that was everybody that was everybody yeah right. so um have they been paying us to stay away or have they been paying us to um you know come back well, at least one person wanted more episodes. Okay, so yeah, I, I, think, yeah. I think it's a positive thing. Focus on right. the positive, Andrew. Okay. Yes. Good. I'm All sure right. the other gentleman who said that we're good for developing Darkroom Time does not want to listen to the January episode over and over again on an infinite loop. Mm-hmm. So exactly. we're going to give them a little variety now. <laughs> Precisely. So uh, um, but we would normally, I would normally hand over to Andrew now and ask him what he's been up to. But I'm going to carry on talking for a little bit longer um, because seeing that we're on the subject of MPP uh, and Micropress, I did a photo walk yesterday in Liverpool. Um, there's a Mersey meetup walk with uh, Stig of the Dump. Steve Starr uh, organised that. That's Stig of the Dump on on Twitter, and I think you've got to put some underscores in there to get to get the correct Stig of the Dump because I believe there are several. Um, but we quite regularly do photo walks in in, in Liverpool and. To be fair, most photo walks don't involve large format cameras, but this time it but did. It should. And uh, it should, and this one did, um, because um, keeping on the, the MPP theme, um, a chap who we, I mentioned on the last podcast was George Walsh, who serviced and repaired uh, my MPP micropress, uh, in particular the focal plane shutter. Um, he, he came along on the walk, uh, and he's local to Liverpool as well, so, uh, so, so he should. And um, he brought along with him um, a Graflex Super D, but it was a three by four. 
yeah. which you know we've we've discussed this before about whether a three by four camera is actually a large format camera or not. It is. Andrew, I don't don't Should care whether it is or it isn't really. If you want to call it a large format camera, <laughs> yeah. Well, we're we're yeah. happy we're happy with three, um, two by three, three by two uh, cameras because they use sheet film. And I think sheet film is probably where large format is, uh, is is all about. Even if the sheets aren't as big as some other ones, but they, and if if the if anyone out there wants to um, you know argue contrarily, you can send us an email to where Eric. <laughs> oh, it were that okay. Fine, we're doing it early. Yeah, we're just in case I leave. Oh shit! I can't remember. Is it large format photography no podcast at gmail.com? That's it. Yeah. Well done. So send your emails to Eric to um, argue about whether <laughs> three, by, three by four yes. is large format. Yeah, and not that we care. Not yeah. that we care. But it yeah. might be entertaining briefly. Yeah, yeah. Bring it. and we'll read it out at the next show at Christmas time. <laughs> well, the other, the, other, the other part of that is that this wasn't an ordinary two by three camera. And apologies for for people that may have been on the show and told us about this before. Um, but I, I've I two by think, three or three by four. I wrote down three by four a minute ago because uh, three by uh, it's shrinking you know every time you mentioned it. Yeah, you know yeah. I'm getting really confused. Like my soul. It was. It was. So is there a three by four? I've no idea. Yeah. I'm just writing yes, it down. You, you're the a two expert. by three, a three by four, and then. Ah, okay. Uh, it's three. Yeah. It's three by four. So um, that's that's definitely getting closer to, that to yeah. uh, two, two by three. Uh, two by three. We might, you know, we might be yeah. able to arguments. Yeah, I actually, I actually own a three by four graphics and um, have photographed the living hell out of it. You just need to get the film holders and then, you know, get X-ray film or something and cut it down, right? Because they don't really make that size except for Ilford's, you know, once a year weird size. Well. Order. Well, um, wait, for, wait for this, Eric. Okay, wait, then bring it, bring it. Yeah, continue. Uh, continue. It, by the way, are you using the Speed Graphical or Super D? Uh, depends on the day. I oh, lately have been using SLRs, so yeah, the the the, the various super. So he's got a three by four Super D, and he's modified it to four by four, which is awesome, in my opinion. A four by four. Yeah, and apparently the the conversion to make it four by four is not that difficult. And then just shooting film holders? Yeah, you're just banging a, a 4x5 um, sheet film, and you, obviously you're losing an inch, but you're getting a, a square um, large format frame, which is, which is as far as I'm concerned, that's great, but I, I love square format anyway. I, I can yeah, shoot true. square format all the time. So they, that seems to that's really knocked you back in your chair there, Eric. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I love square format. Like I love square format a lot. The Pentagon 6s are my favorite medium format cameras ever. And there's times where even when I'll shoot, you know, the digital um, for B-roll on the pieces I do, and I'll shoot that square. Cause I, I just, I love square. You're right. I love square. Um, I think this is different because it forces you to, to frame things yeah. in a completely different way than like what we're used to. If, if you sort of grew up cutting your teeth on 35 millimeter, as I think most of us did in that like rectangular format. Right. Yeah. Um, and also to think about the mechanics of converting a three by four to a four by four. He had to have like shoved it back, give it a little bit more room. Um, well, let me let me point out your measure. I please. I think it's it's yeah, some point in, in some points in the future, in not too many shows, um, we'll be asking George to come on, all right, and, uh, and he can tell you all about it. Which is an interesting chap as well. Was he's shooting um, a lot of wet plates at the moment, and he showed me a picture of his new enlarger. Um, uh, which is a 10 by 10 uh, enlarger. 
And the photograph of his 10 by 10 enlarger had a De Vere 504 sitting in it. And it made it look like a toy. Yeah, so... Yeah, we we need to have a chat to George, and he's a nice chap. And uh, so, at some point in the not too distant future, uh, George, you'll be with us. Um, okay, so so that's uh, that was yesterday. Um, just a couple other things to to catch up on. Uh, I've taken very few large format photographs this year, except uh, this year I was found myself down a culvert. Um, I don't know if that's a word that translates into American. A culvert, um, a culvert would be a ditch. Yeah. That's 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 a, a similar kind of thing as that. So it's, it's man-made, um, and this particular one is for um, water coming from a hillside and sewage, um, pretty much the, the 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 two things. And uh, I put myself uh, and a friend down into a culvert deliberately uh, to get a shot with large format, with so, or without sewage. Like, uh, did you did you sacrifice? Did you wade in sewage for this? Uh, well, it was it was a case there there was fluid. Um, <laughs> going down this 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 tunnel, and um, and and it was it was it was basically a concrete pipe uh, that that we were in, and or it felt like a concrete. No, it wasn't a concrete pipe, but it was it had a had that kind of shape at the base of it, and so I could walk up it, um, stooping stooping as well, uh, because it was a, it was a tunnel, and I could keep if I could spread my legs wide enough, I could I could. <laughs> walk up on one side to the other without getting too wet i was in wellies as well you know so i i could actually get wet so that wasn't too bad but it didn't smell that bad um there was a whiff um and and the other side of it is you know there was a waterfall on the other side although it's a man-made thing and it's quite an interesting situation i have no idea if the photographs have turned out because i've i messed one up and and i haven't developed the rest of them yet um but i'm i'm hopeful um but what i do know is I, when I got back and the, my, my tripod absolutely stank uh, <laughs> and I still haven't actually built up the courage to go out to the garage to actually soak it and jet wash it or do whatever I need to do with it before I can use it again. Um, and I really, really hope that the photo is worth it. Um, so when you say you, you screwed up, the, the one of them is screwed up, it's like, missed the, like you, you just screwed up the, uh, the exposure and you've got to figure out, okay, how do I, no, how do I, I fix this in, in development or... It, it was actually no. I think I probably I, I think I exposed it correctly, and then in my the fact that I haven't been taking any well enough large format photos, I'd forgotten to flip the dark slide to tell me which I was exposed, oh. which one wasn't, and then I took the holder out for some reason. I thought, oh no, I better do the other side. I'll do a similar exposure. And then I couldn't remember which side I'd done. So right. I've got one's exposed, one's not exposed. And then I did uh, a few others with uh, a different film. So I think I used um, Adox CHS 100 for one of them or more of them. And I used HP5 as well. So, uh, And hopefully I can remember which ones I used of those because that's going to be fun for developing. Um, and I'll be doing that in 510 Pyro because that's my go-to developer at the moment. So, uh, so I like that. It certainly scans well. I haven't printed with it yet, but it scans brilliantly. So uh, fingers crossed it'll... Uh, It'll do the job, and uh, Andrew, you're 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 a big pyro user these days, aren't you? Sorry, did you say something? <laughs> so you you're using a lot of pyro at the moment, Andrew. I'm not actually no, no, no. I um, um I'm mostly using ID eleven one plus one because ID eleven neat and diluted ID eleven then it changes its nature it becomes the more you dilute it it becomes more like a 
it becomes more like a, um, a, a sort of surface acting developer like HC110, like Rodanol, and those 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 blends of developers, and it um, uh, loses a bit of sharpness. But in large format, it doesn't really matter too much. But uh, ID11 Neat is what's called a solvent developer, where it sort of replates itself with silver um, in a very Bear in mind, I'm not a chemist, but that's basically what it means, I think, is a solvent effect on the film and on the silver, and it kind of replays itself, and it helps with sharpness. So ID11 and D76, which get loads of well, they get loads of bad press. I think they get loads of bad press because they get accused of being, well, you know, just like boring, aren't they? But actually, really interesting developers. And um, uh, so I've been using using those. But funnily enough, I did actually purchase a small amount of Pyrocat HD, sorry, James Lane, um, to develop my World War One pictures in, because I know from previous experience that when I rate, rate Foma Pan 64 with my setup, with my lenses that I'm using for large format at ISO 64, and then develop them in Pyrocat HD for 10 minutes, one plus one plus 100, no fancy semi-stand or anything, just 30 seconds, and then two or three inversions every minute, I get, um, like you had with 510 Pyro, negatives that, in my case, print really easily. And um, the, they, the staining is is less on Pyro, on the Fomapan 100 than it is on FP4 or HP5. Um, when I, in fact, when you first look at them, you think, has it stained it at all? But when you compare it next to an ID11, negative you can see there's a definite um, brown tinge to it um and so i did buy some and i've used it all up because i developed my four by five negatives and i've had some lovely results with 510 pyro um uh, but i don't it's just a bit thick really you know a bit like me probably that's the reason why i don't like using it and uh, it stains the heck out of things you touch you know you're, you see you're using it in the middle of the summer simon so um very true you know I'm going to get hate mail from James Lane there. So just, um, just put it in your pocket and walk walk around with it for yeah, a bit. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like a, a, the end yeah, of thanks, um, thanks, thanks for that question, Simon. The end of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. You know, when the principal goes and he sits in the in the, in the bus next to the, the the weird kid and she pulls out a gummy bear and she's like, "Would you like a gummy bear? It's warm. It's been in my pocket. You could just do that. Just <laughs> put a pyrocat in your pocket. You're just weird. I'm <laughs> miss speaking to you." Yeah, you know, I do my best. I do my best. I've just been using plain old boring HC one ten. It's absolutely it's well. It, again, you can you can um, by the choice of developer dilution, you can yeah you can marry it to whatever sort of shooting conditions you were under, can't you? Yeah, pretty much. So if I actually kept track of shooting conditions. Yeah, I know. I like, say that I as well. Like I was away and I was in my head. I was sort of monitoring the brightness range, you know, numbers of stops. And and I had a plan to separate sheets of film to say, well, I need to give this one a bit more extra development or this one a bit less. But in the end, they all went in a box and I just developed them all for the same time. Yeah. I mean, with the, um, I've been shooting a, a metric shit ton of the Ilford Ortho Plus um, hmm. 4x5. Why? And why? Why have you been using that film? What, what, what do you like about it? Actually, I... Versus, it's more expensive than than the other ortho films I typically shoot. 
But why do you why there. why do you like what is it about the ortho films that you like for your subject matter? Um, it depends. Like for the for, for my World War One stuff, I wanted to see something that was more period correct, right? Because panchromatic film didn't really exist. Okay. In yep. the early 1900s. You could just um, use ordinary panchromatic pan film with a blue filter, couldn't you? Cyan filter, I think, technically, right? Well, you know. Blue, um, yeah. Um, if you want to do stops. But also, you know, panchromatic film is typically expensive. More expensive than the, the Arista stuff. But the Arista, it shoots, you know, 6 or 8 ASA, and then you got to push it to 25 ASA if, if you aren't doing anything with good light. Mm -hmm. And the Ilford Plus, Ortho Plus, is... Um, Naturally rated ADSA, which means you can shoot it essentially at 50 or 100 and you're within half a stop up or down, right? And without having to really change your development any, if that's what you want to do. Um, and you can push it to 200, which is only like a stop and a half. And it's barely a push and it handles it really, really well. Mm. Uh, but also I can, because I, like I just said, I don't like keep track of what the light was like or anything else. I can develop underneath a red light and kind of monitor it as I go and keep it. They'll be like, okay, okay. You know, I think this should be six or seven minutes and yeah. it needs a little bit more. It needs a little bit less. Oh shit. I need okay. to pull that right now. What about um, rud ruddy face gentlemen, you know, or people with lots of red, like people who drink too much. They've got big red noses. That that's, that's a nice look, isn't it? With an the tonality with, with that film actually is, is really good. Like I get sky, I get, I can get clouds like it doesn't yeah, well, you, but apart from the red filter but it, you can change the you, you using a yellow or orange filter does have an effect yeah, as well doesn't yeah, yeah. it yeah if if i paid attention to those things either yeah you know, i just load it up and i just shoot it who's um, just releasing a 400 speed ortho film who's some wait who what yeah yeah no it's, yeah it's coming out Lies. it's either coming out or is out isn't it i'm not just making that up am i simon i've not heard it either Oh, you! Oh, Homa. There we go. I'll be damned. If um, if that. I could use my iPhone with any kind of certainty, see how that screen's cracked. Uh, there's a story about that. I'll tell you a bit. I've just ordered a new refurbished because I just can't use this anymore because I can't see what I'm doing with it. I'd Google more and find out about it. Foma. Yeah. Yeah, Foma. Is it released? Yep. I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, I would. I would love it if they release this in 120, isn't it? 120. Yeah, 120, which is sadness. Um, I mean, it's fine. I shoot one. I shoot 120 a bunch too, but mm -hmm. um, I've been shooting predominantly four by five, actually, lately. Mm -hmm. It's not. Wow, that's not a bad cost. Holy crap! Seriously. Well, it's foamer, isn't it? What they what they pitching it at? Five ninety five ninety four euro a roll. Okay. That's pretty good. That's at least compared to others. Yeah, I think the Ilford stuff is probably really... that's depends where you buy it from, but you're probably looking six, seven quid a roll, aren't you, for the Ilford? Yeah, exactly. Stuff. For eighty ASA. Oh, I might have to get some of this and muck around with it mm -hmm. for my what medium format stuff, um, which I just haven't been doing lately. But I might. I might. Hmm. But yeah, and also to finish out the the Ilford HC one ten thing, it's a base development of six minutes. Mm. Yeah, so yeah like, that's the other thing. So whilst you can dilute ID eleven down one plus three, and then it becomes a probably a true compensating developer. So that just means that 
if you want to control the highlights, which something like a staining developer typically does, or some other um, split working developers based on D23 or something. So what might be known as compensating developers. Then, it compensates um, for the time. You know. For shit exposure or just poor. <laughs> I would say the fact of inadequacies, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that, in fact, that's quite a so uh, bring me back to ID 11 diluted one to three in a minute. But you know, that, so what about if you just have a fairly slapdash approach to exposure? So just overexpose everything to make sure you get good shadow detail, which isn't a bad thing, and then just develop it in a in a forgiving, such a forgiving developer that you don't have to worry that you've pushed all the highlights up a bit too far. Because the I can probably control I can it, you know. Relate to that. That's pretty yeah. much, you know, mm -hmm. what I do. Well, um, diluting ID eleven or D seventy six one to three um, is nice. You know, you so then it does become a compensating developer, and you lose some sharpness, and it becomes more of a developer, a bit like HT one ten surface acting developer. But the times get really stupidly long. You know, you might almost start doing stand developing them at, you know. Might take I, twenty five minutes to do Fomapan one hundred or something, you know. And I mean, uh, you know, and then you, I, you can't. Sorry, you can't even leave it. You have to keep, you know, every minute. Yeah. Of, you still have yeah. to stand there, aren't you? So it's a bit of a ball's ache, really. I shot the Arista Ortho on Route sixty six, and pushed it to twenty five ASA the entire time. So full like two stops, mm -hmm. and the development time became eighteen and a half minutes. Yeah, and I think. I can't remember if it was, was that. It was that was HT one ten, was it? Or Rodinol? I think it was Rodinol one to one hundred or something. Like okay. super, super diluted. But every film development run was eighteen and a half minutes um, <laughs> in the developer alone. So it was. But they came out fully tonal. They came out beautiful. Were you, they were were you able to keep the temperature at twenty degrees, or were you doing it at higher temperature? And did you uh, take temp? Was it room temp sixty eight? Yeah. It was uh, at Rayco, the now sadly long gone Rayco uh, Center in San Francisco, and they just had a sheet development room. So I could oh, just okay. reserve the sheet development room for like six hours. Oh, I thought you were talking about something recently. No, no, this yeah. is Route sixty six. Route sixty six for me was like eight years ago at this point. Have you ever spoken at length on to us about that, or did I just zone out when you started talking about it? I mean, it's fair to say that you you. Probably should have zoned out if I did talk about it. Um, well, you've, talked about, ever... you've talked about the butterscotch route or whatever it's called. Of <laughs> <laughs> course, for me, like, you know. Um, Is that the, the mail route or whatever it's called? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I've I talked about I that one probably as a guest. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I've ever talked about Route 66. Yeah, I, I, I bicycled Route 66 with a travel wide mm -hmm. eight years ago. Yeah, I think you may have touched on it, but when we get really desperate and yeah, got totally. a guest, we'll, we'll get you back on to yeah, talk about yeah, it. We'll talk about it, yeah. Um, I was going to say, well, let, let's use let's use this moment to catch up on what Eric's been up to recently, because you've been up to a lot on your bike again, haven't you? And over and in an airplane as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I it's been a busy a busy year so far, and like I said, shockingly, I haven't been shooting four by five for a bit. But then all this year, most of my work is, is centered around four by five work. Um, in the spring, I flew to Paris and rode from Paris to Roubaix on the, the famous 19 Perry Perry Roubaix is a, a famous bicycle race. One of the spring classics. Um, all of the, the people who out there who listen to the podcast, who intersect between bikes, the bike nerddom and camera nerddom, like no Perry Roubaix. So I rode the world war one, 1919 Perry Roubaix course. Um, and then did some portraits and photography of the Perry Roubaix women's race, uh, with four by five with the Polaroid 800, that I've converted to four by five um, for portraits. It's a 
it's a brilliant camera. Like it's so underrated compared to the Polaroid 110. Everybody goes for the 110, you know, because it's got the adjustable shutter and everything, and they throw away the 800s. And I'm here to tell you that 800 lens is hack damn sharp. It's an amazing portrait lens. Andrew. Um, didn't want to just interrupt you. No, no, by all means. What was, weren't you converting something, Simon, in one of your many little side mm. side strings? You know, yeah, before you started three printing, before you started properly three D printing lens caps, weren't a long time ago? Weren't you converting something? I, um, I, I was, but it, I got so far with it. But I was, I was determined to. I, f- I forget which Polaroid it was now. Uh, Eric probably just mentioned it. Um, and one, I think it was the one ten. It was a. It's got. It's a Jap- It was a Japanese iteration uh, of it. Um, it's one that people do convert to four by five. But uh, mm. I was trying to do it in a way that was completely non destructive. And uh, yeah. I, got, I got to a part where it was impossible not to destroy it. Yeah. So, um, and I thought that's it. It, it. I lost my interest in it at that point. So it's, uh, it's, it's sitting in pieces. I mean, I think you might theoretically be able to do it in some level with a minimum amount of destruction. Oh, yeah. For oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just like, the front, how you the position and where the front stander goes on onto the rail. Um, the, well, it's, it's, it's rivet. It's riveted the part. Yeah, you just have to pop out the rivet. That's not destructive. Yeah, that's a that's standard that. operating procedure. No, no that's dest- in my opinion, that's destructive. <laughs> you know? yeah. We're gonna have a, a slightly vigorous debate because I'm, all I'm that saying. is is moving the front standard with a rivet and then you re-screw it down. Like it's not destructive. Yeah. No, and you uh, have to in order to change the film plane. Like, there's no way to do it otherwise. Exa- exactly, exactly, I, and that's that's where it was. But I'm, it's just I'm, a rivet. Yeah, I'm 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 taking a no compromise. Dude, that's way too purist. I've moved on. I've moved on. Uh, then send it to me. Like finish that. Finish it out so it'll it, everything is four by five converted. All you need to do is undo the rivet and adjust the front standard by five millimeters, and I will take that shit for you. That's fine. Mm. <laughs> So then, uh, Eric, you were saying. <laughs> um, the 800s are brilliant portrait cameras. Like They are fantastic. Um, and then I've just done a whole series of, of pieces with 4 by most like 4 by 5 portraits. Um, the handmade 4 by 5 box camera, my pandemic camera, um, and handmade lens came out to play for some portraits for one piece and then uh, the handmade, the four by five box camera and like an early 1900s Kodak 3A lens on it uh, for another piece of portraits. And just lately the Intrepid four by five has come out to play again, uh, the Mark II, which is now like old school, you know, like they're, they're on like what, Mark five or something like that at this point, I think, Mark six. Um, so that's come out. I just a piece that just got published today um, was shot with that, and I'm really, really, really happy with those portraits. Uh, and then an ongoing series that I'm shooting um, on bicycle small American manufacturers of small bicycle parts because you know globalization, all that sort of stuff, has really killed American manufacturing. Um, so I'm doing a series of portraits around like people who make stuff, you know. Um, and somehow earn a living doing it. Is, that, is this this on? Sorry, Simon. This is this this Louis guy who's you posted a picture recently. Uh, a CAD guy. Not, yeah, I don't mean he's yeah. a CAD like a bander. He's like a CAD. Yeah, Louis. He hasn't he hasn't got a long twirly wax moustache. No, 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 <laughs> no CAD. 
computer assisted drawing. You posted this picture on Instagram, um, and you said that this oh this was a, with a handmade lens. Yeah, yeah. And you said it yeah. sharpens up a lot at f11 ish. Yeah, exactly. but you weren't sure that it was the kind of vibe you wanted for that portrait. Yeah, it's it's like sometimes, and also you know, uh, starting with the the Pride Cat portraits that went up today. Um, the thing with the handmade lenses is like when you shoot them straight on flat film plane, you know, that you guys have seen it. It's got that center and then it drops off really rapidly. So if you're shooting portraits, like their face has to be in the middle of the frame, which is really boring and limited. So I, that's why I broke out the Intrepid. So, you know, I could take that front mm -hmm. standard and like sort of move it around and like try to get the very, very limited, very difficult to control, you know, focal plane for the handmade lenses someplace that was usable for a portrait like putting their face someplace other than the middle of the frame um and it works it works really well once you sort of put the the front standard through like yoga and gymnastics and like it gets in all sorts mm -hmm. of crazy positions to get the shot um but then you can get a lot of things sharpened and focused that maybe i didn't want to have you know um at certain so this picture picture of the of the man i think he's a man it looks like he's about to fall off his bicycle but he's probably not yeah um, Lee. it's probably deliberate isn't it is that so that's a few pictures down from yeah. your instagram feed is is that with the uh intrepid yeah it's just the intrepid but that's straight on like that's an example of how the handmade lenses do if you just keep like the, the front standard straight the focal mm. plane straight and just like straight on without any yeah so his legs his, his legs in focus yeah, and then everything else just blurs right the and the, right the people hell out. immediately behind him are quite sharp, aren't they? It's almost yeah. like you've got a tunnel. It's quite interesting. Actually, I've not looked at this before, mainly because my phone's knackered. Um, but <laughs> I just you've got the, this you've got this weird tunnel of sharpness. Mm -hmm. this is, I think you've discovered some new Scheinflug variation. <laughs> Scheinflug's tunnel. <laughs> exactly. Have you, have you um, his like his leg, and then there's a tunnel of sharpness. It's not just my eyes, is it? I'm sure it's... No, no. It's weird. Look at that. Scheinflug's tunnel. There we go. Exactly. <laughs> so I think that's it. That shot was F11 or F16. Mm -hmm. Um with a handmade lens. It's a, actually, it's a late 1890s brass lens uh, from a five by seven that I removed one of the commercial optical elements and put in, you know, some random acromat from the surplus shed and just like blew it to pieces uh, as I do. So, so yeah, um, just shooting a ton of photojournalism four by five stuff. Uh, and mm. it's been going really well. Like I, I actually like, a lot of the the results. I like a lot of the portraits that have been coming out. Of like um, the stories that are being done, and uh, kind of getting to a point where I'm getting more of that work. I mean, it's not enough to come anywhere close to to paying any kind of bill, um, but it's kind of nice to have work sort of randomly show up sometimes. Um, or to like pitch somebody to go in and do a story on them and have them say, oh, yeah, I saw that piece you did. That was really great. Uh, we we're totally open to having you, you know, come in and make photographs and talk to us. So, so this fine. this um, bicycle route, the Paris-Roubaix race, mm -hmm. how, how far is that? 
it was 250-ish miles. And did you, you weren't racing, but you were no, plod, no. Plod, plodding along with a load of photo gear in panniers. Yeah, I had, I had like a 25, and I'm going to switch to Europe to, to European measurements. I metric, I had like a 25-kilogram-ish backpack of like, I brought a Kodak 3A, um, I brought the Polaroid 800, the Kodak 3A, the Fuji GFX 50, um, and a variety of lenses for the GFX, like 12 4 x 5 film holders for the Polaroid mm -hmm. 800, um, and a boatload of of medium format film. But you you were agonizing, like everyone does when they go anywhere, about what to take with you. And I think you had a few false starts. I mean, in the end, did you take the right amount of gear, or do you think you could have got away with um, uh, fewer cameras? Do you think that would have, um, helped, would have helped if you if you do it again now? Take what takeaways have you got from that trip? in terms of the sort of portraits you made and could you like leave half the stuff behind right i could have generally i i brought like a strobe and a and an l bracket for it and really agonized over like getting that to work with the polaroid 800 because the 800 doesn't have an, a, a modern flash thing to it um and that's that was a lot of extra gear and weight and bulk then in the end i didn't end up using the strobe at all um so I probably could have left the the flash and the flash bracket and all that sort of stuff at home. But, you know, you never know. That's like a CYA. The second you leave it at home was the second, like, you get there. It's like, oh, crap, I really needed this. Um, the real bummer was that the Kodak 3A that I converted to shoot 6x14, like, broke on the last day. The, the shaft that connects the the mirror to the reset mechanism, I haven't taken it apart yet or sent it off, snapped or just, like, stopped working. So I couldn't reset the mirror anymore. Um, and that was shitty. That was a, a huge bummer. I, I mean, I, I got four days on, in the field riding with it and everything and, and, you know, some really great images, but it was, it was a huge bummer to have that, to have that fail. Um, and I took it because it's period correct. Like in world war one, that camera was what the U S signal Corps actually, one of the cameras, the U S signal Corps actually take and used um to photograph the war and try to control the narrative of the war actually uh so it was um important for me to use a piece of period correct equipment with a period correct lens i didn't use a handmade it's a, a a french lens is what i had on it from like the early 1900s um so that was the bummer that was the, the real big bummer for me was having the 3a cack out you know on the last day actually when i was shooting one of the commonwealth um grave sites um where rudyard kipling's son is buried what was the name of that can you remember um i can look it up real quick it's in it's in all my notes um <laughs> but yeah i got there to photograph uh his son's grave and took it out and there's like you know uh, a bunch of Commonwealth grave, you know, folks there. They're redilling the cross at the front and all this great construction, and they were doing yard work along, you know, amongst the graves and everything. Mm. And I was like, this is perfect. This is great, you know. And I, I hooked myself into a, the like the farm field across the road from from the cemetery and took it out and uh, went to like, oh, it needs to be recocked, and it's just like, oh, it's just flipping. And ah, oh, son of a bitch, it's broken. 
<laughs> no, uh, that's St. Mary's ADS Cemetery in H A I S N E S French. Um, Somewhere, John Kipling. Yes, yeah, John Kipling, mm-hmm. who died at. Uh, okay. um, he died at Chalk Pitwood, right across the way from there. Remind me when we get onto a similar sort of theme to talk about bodies recovered recently, Canadian bodies at Bimmy Ridge. Ah, okay. Tell you, sure. tell you about that in a minute. Yeah, it was, um, that whole trip was really interesting. I mean, the getting off of like large front photography or whatever second. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was an eye-opening trip. It, the sheer is it the first time you've seen, people. first time you've seen those Commonwealth war graves? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, first time I won't say it's the first time I've been to France. It's definitely the first time I've been to northern France. Yeah. For sure. Um and it's a very, very interesting section of France. It's very mm-hmm. agricultural and very um industrial. Uh as my as my buddy Sofiane, who was sort of my guide on the ride, said it's like one of the poorer sections of France, but honestly the nicest section of France is like people in the North will actually like stop and talk to you and ask you if you need help and like be very open and friendly and welcoming. It's like, we're not like that. And the rest of France, we're not, we're not like this. (laughs) We don't, we don't do that. Um, So, uh, and not necessarily the nicest section to ride bikes through for five days, you know, because it's all farm fields or whatever, but, I, I know it's like where I grew up, so it's it's not anything that's. Well, there's um, I mean, we we spent four days in Belgium because we were only like thirty minutes from the Belgian border, right. and uh, uh, cyclists everywhere. Yeah, oh yeah. Boy, they get in the way. Sorry. So if you've got any, uh, <laughs> if you want to send hate mail to um, me about cyclists, um, so, so, I was going to say says Andrew the caravan uh, <laughs> owner. Yeah, but I, I get over there and park it up, and I don't go and bother people with it. For yeah, you're, st- you're still going to be bothering plenty of cyclists and other road users while you're. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't there. take. To be honest, it doesn't take much to bother the f- average French driver who are just idiots, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> and here we go. Yeah. Um. <laughs> but the amount of cyclists, goodness me, in Belgium in particular. Yeah, yeah, they're everywhere. They just are, when you just when I set my tripod up, there's another one coming down. Well, I mean, so you're telling you saying they're in the way of your photographs, not of your your driving. Well, both really. <laughs> they should just get cars, shouldn't they? That make life a no, lot easier. No, you're not getting any sympathy from me here on that one. So, did you? Um, so, I've got this vision of you sweating profusely trying to catch up with these riders are going a lot quicker than you and by the time you get there to take your pictures they've probably moved on to the next stage or how did that work oh uh, well i so the the main piece was on the intersection of of um cycling and war so Perrier bay is a very a very famous bike, bike race in certain late 1800s and uh, the first time it was ever not raced was i think 1915 or 1916 after world war one broke out um and then it has this nickname that's called the hell of the North. And everybody thinks it's that because of the race conditions it's run in the spring. So usually when it's wet and cold and muddy and shitty, um, and they, they specifically run the race over as many sections of those old cobblestone or pave as they can, which makes it absolutely brutal. And they do it on like road bikes, right? Not mountain bikes or anything, skinny tires. So it's a race that's famous for its sheer brutality. 
Um, and most people think that that Hell of the North nickname comes from the brutality of the race and the weather. But in reality, it comes from the 1919 edition of the race when they first got back from World War I. The race was run five months after Armistice. And uh, if you look, draw a line from Paris to Roubaix, the last two-thirds of that line is the Western Front. So they race through the, the very recent remnants of the Great War and um, towns that didn't exist and cemeteries and carnal fields and sewage and just death, destruction everywhere. Uh, the guy who won it is famous for saying this wasn't a race, this was a pilgrimage. Um, and it earned the name the Hell of the North because of that edition of the race. Um, but most people don't know that. Even the racers, a lot of the racers don't know that. Um, and it struck me that as we have things like Syria and Ukraine and other sorts of happenings in the world, even World War II, that the Great War was supposed to be the war to end all wars. It was supposed to be the last war, and it wasn't. And so we carry things forward from war that we don't realize, like the names of a bike race. Um, and we oftentimes don't seem to learn the lessons that we should learn. Um, and I want to do a piece on that intersection of, of like everyday life or like cycling or whatever with something that we should actually be talking about and something that we should actually be learning from. Um, so myself and a friend retraced the original 1919 route to kind of see what was still there and make photographs and, you know, talk to some people if we could. Um, to do a piece on that kind of intersection of of cycling culture, popular culture, and history, mm. and and today's events, right? Um, I guess generally speaking, I try as often as I can to find things that I think we should be talking about as a world, as a society. Um, but in the in the venue of cycling, because that's where I work, and that's where people are willing to listen to me, and that's where people like are willing to publish my stuff. Right. Um, so, so yeah, that's, so I wasn't chasing that, that particular part of it wasn't chasing anybody. Uh, although Sophie Ann is much faster than me. And then I photographed the women's edition of the Perry Roubaix, which is, this is only the third year. So it's only been three years that the women have had their own professional edition of the race. Um, they've actually gotten some level of like parity and equality, even though they're still paid less. Um, to do portraits of the women who race Paris-Roubaix. And that went really well. That was super fun. Like that was, that's if you can go see one single, like spring classic, as they're called, uh, go see Paris-Roubaix. Mm. It's, it's an absolute blast. It's brutal and epic. And the, the, the roadside parties, like the Belgians show up like three or four days beforehand in their, in their caravans and just like hang out at the side of the road and it's in the middle of nowhere, just drinking and partying and like hanging out with anybody who will stop to talk to them. Um, it's a, it's a total blast. It's a great time. It's good. Have you developed everything developed all your film that you brought back? Um, I still have to develop some 35 millimeters stuff. Uh, I just haven't gotten to, I just sort of got really busy as soon as I got home. But the, the portraits of the women who raced Perubay, that, that stuff is up and published with interviews um so you've you've mentioned twice published i mean is that different from something else that was published are you published twice now or more, more? Um, i've probably had man i don't even know like five or six yeah 
pieces would you, published would, would, in the last would, would, would you like to list the, the publications that you've been uh, published in, just in case anybody's <laughs> in, and, and these will be in the notes, so uh, we will check the whole Right, right. So, Most of the work is up at, at an online cycling magazine called The Radivist. T-H-E-R-A-D-A-V-I-S-T uh, dot com. Um, who are willing to to publish non-traditional work. A lot of cycling media is pretty traditional, and I don't know that they, they're not necessarily into the, the things that I do. <laughs> um, and then I have one interview and series of port photos and of portraits on a, a famous current contemporary bicycle racer from Australia named Lachlan Morton. That's, go, that's going into a, an American mountain biking magazine called American Flyer. Sorry, Mountain Flyer. Um, Mountain Flyers name a magazine. They're quarterly, and that's going into their photo annual, which is coming out in I think like a month and a half. And then I've just been entered and then commissioned to do a a piece for a, a German cycling culture mag magazine, print magazine. Um, I still have to hammer out the details on and and whatnot. Um, so yeah, getting there. No, that's 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 absolutely excellent. I mean, it's 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 great when a member of this podcast is uh, getting some kind of uh, publicity out there, and um, yeah. and obviously it makes Andrew and I look more credible that we've got somebody that actually knows what they're doing on. <laughs> no, I mean Andrew's running his dark his workshops that are, that seem quite popular. I mean, you know, you're getting people in there all the time. Am I am I mistaken in this, Andrew? Like you're doing? Oh, it's been fairly quiet this year, but that's mainly because that's mainly down to. Yeah, changing work patterns and life patterns, really. So I've only had two this whole year. I think a bit similar to the podcast. <laughs> it's just as well I don't rely on it to um, pay the mortgage. What mortgage? Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, pay the bills. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Actually, you should do more of those. Well, move, moving on from uh, northern France, um, should we talk about northern Belgium? Uh, well, well, no. Belgium, well, no. It was, we were we were in France actually. So rewind back to hmm, maybe 2017. If you um, dig into my WordPress blog, which is uh, probably Warboy Snapper or something, anyway, or just Google me, <laughs> Andrew Bartram, WordPress.com. I think maybe. Well, it'll we'll be the notes. We'll find it. A link. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that's permanently listed in the notes. So. You've no excuse but to um, go and look, uh, to, to not go and look for it. So back then, I start. I uh, we I went with a mate of mine, my mate Will, and an old work colleague, and we had three or four days in uh, at the campsite in Ypres. So that's you know on the Western Front. Um, it uh, it was occupied as a town by the Allies, you know, main, mainly French and mainly the French, but then reinforced, you know, over the early part of World War One by um, the Canadians and other Commonwealth members. And at one point, the German lines were almost at a point of taking Ypres over, and then they kind of stalled, and the Allies pushed back. Uh, and it formed all through between 14 um, and 18, 1914 and 1918, there was this moving front line well when i say moving i mean it probably moved no less than a quarter of a mile in all those years right. um 
certainly in one year, I think, if not the whole. Yeah, so I've got to be careful with my stats here. I know 250,000 people died and the front line moved like, you know, 10 yards or something. It's just ridiculous. Um, so this is known as a salient and you can do battlefield tours or you can, you know, there's some really good book resources out there um, uh, that give you battlefield guides or you can take guided tours. And you can you can go around this, um, you, you can follow the Ypres salient and revisit a multitude of Commonwealth graves, um, museums that have sprung up, craters from mines that were dug by the Allies under the southern half of the Western Front Line near uh, Mezines, near the ridge. And on one day in 1915, maybe, the Allies had simultaneously exploded this line of high explosives all the way down the front line underneath the German positions. And uh, goodness knows how many Germans were killed, but basically it took a, it took part of the salient and made it into a straight line. And, you know, they almost overnight gained half a mile or something. And you can, you can, you can revisit these craters and um, there are a few in the landscape. Some of them are in private ownership, an easy, easy to get to one is called is at uh, Zilbeck, which is to the north of Ypres, and that's at uh, Hill 60, which was at the time 60 meters in height. I think these days it's more like 20 meters because it's just had the Jesus bombed out of it, you know. Um, so I went with Will. I went with Will, and we spent three days really just going to different sites around the salient. And this is 2017. I took my large, I took my Toyo with me and some FP4. And I had um, I had a couple of other cameras, but maybe I know I wasn't really sure at the time what I was going to be doing. I went with no clear idea of uh, of what I was doing there, and it, and the project, such as it is, kind of emerged by accident because I found myself we were visiting these war cemetery after war cemetery, and as you drive into like on this trip I've just done now with Julie, we we, we head into Belgium, and virtually on every street corner, on every field corner, there's a small cemetery because they buried yep. these people where they died pretty much, you know, uh, just after they, they, they put the bodies together into makeshift cemeteries. And after the war, they gathered them together and made a bit of a cemetery. But what, why would you take them, you know, hundred miles somewhere when, you know, the, you know, it's just easier to create a cemetery where it is. So these cemeteries are just on corners of fields, you know, and they're all signposted. And, to be honest, this sounds really harsh, doesn't it? But when you've seen one, you've seen them all because they're like wine lines of pristine white graves and it's all very moving. And yet, and I started turning my back physically, not meta, not, you know, I don't really turn my back on it, but just looking at the landscape around, which is now, you know, northern France, rolling landscape, agricultural, um, you know, quite, quite nice, you know, pretty landscape. Um, some industrial places, you know, we visited um, some site of some really fierce fighting, and now it's like a an industrial estate with um, um, you know modern warehouses and things. And I found myself photographing things like that. So I photographed these sort of warehouses, and I photographed north of Ypres. Uh, there's Essex Cemetery, where the guy who wrote on Flanders Field, Canadian um, surgeon. Uh, he wrote the poem. He, he was based there, and you can go visit the bunkers where he where he where he healed people and um, 
you know, uh, cut their legs off and things, you know, as a surgeon. And so I found myself not photographing the obvious, really, and photographing things quite quite banal things really well the, the image i think all the photographs i made are pretty banal and it to, to, and it started in my head to take on a meaning when you link it to what is behind me as i'm taking these pictures you see right. so there's this, i'm standing i'm standing on almost on top of you know 2000 dead commonwealth soldiers you know at my back and i'm photographing the landscape whatever that happens to be around me sometimes a broad landscape sometimes a bit of detail using some of the you know, like eric was doing talking about with you know uh, forget shine flug you're just sort of randomly moving the standards until you get something that you like the look of you know on the ground glass to try and em try and like uh, pick out a bit of barbed wire you know on a post and then some poppies which of course black and white mostly um in the background um so, so some of that sort of stuff a little bit of detail but mainly fairly straight on shots of the landscape, you know, with a bit of forward tilt to maximize depth mm -hmm. of field. And the project halfway through the trip in 2017, the, the, I think I'd probably watched that film, what lies beneath <laughs> and uh, maybe that influenced the title, but that, that was a thought that came to me, you know, what, what lies beneath. And so that's the idea behind these landscapes. So going again, this time was an opportunity to, to um, carry on that project really. So we revisited some of the sites I'd been to with Will, and uh, but we did we did a lot more as well because I wanted to take Julie back to Bedford House Cemetery, which is just beautiful. We we visited this museum, this uh, museum at a place called Huge Crater. Now that's spelled H O O G E, not <laughs> not huge as in big. <laughs> Although it's probably pretty big, right? I think it was, but it was it was um, it was pretty it was pretty much on the on the front line, the, the on the on the Ypres salient. A salient is a word that means bulge, so that's the the bulge in the front line that went round Ypres, which was most famously fought over in 1917 in the third battle of Ypres, which is known as Passchendaele, um, which was just madness personified in the, you know, buffoon generals in London telling people to, to go and throw themselves into machine guns. And, you know, I mean, anyway, it's just dreadful, really. The madness of war. No wonder they said it was the war to end all wars. So we, um, we, uh, I was looking at the itinerary the night before, and I said to Julie, "This place looks really interesting. There's this huge HWG uh, crater museum." So it was, it was on, it was near, not not so far away from Hill Sixty, another one of these craters. But the crater is no longer there. The site where the crater is is now a cemetery, and across the road from the cemetery is this museum. And it was like eight euros to get in, and it was fascinating. I mean, the amount of stuff that's in there was mostly stuff that the the, the owner had recovered from digs, architectural, architectural, um, archaeological digs over the years, and uh, you you were just overwhelmed with the amount of material on there, you know. And you weren't overwhelmed with a lot. There, there wasn't a lot of writing to read, you know. So it was good visually. In fact, it probably could have done with a bit more context. There was a really good audio-visual thing summarizing the whole of the way the salient moved over the years. And because and, it can be really confusing to, you know, the first Battle of Ypres, the second Battle of Ypres, third Battle of Ypres, Passchendaele, and so on. It can be really confusing. Uh, so that, that was very helpful. But then we went upstairs, and um, they've got this big window looking out over the cemetery, over the uh, big round window. They call it the eye over the field of the dead or something. And up there, this fairly new development, I think, there was three separate displays of 
the soldiers, the young men, they were 19 to 22, who were buried across the road. And there was like um, a photograph of their gravestone and uh, some medals and a bit of the sort of background and some, maybe, maybe some letters they had on them when their bodies were recovered. And uh, one of them was from Wars, you know, where, where I live. And it was just nuts, you know. We suddenly found this one guy. And he's not on, it turns out he's not on the, um, I'm waving my arms around so you can, people can see, he's not on the World War One memorial in the village at all. And um, I, I messaged lady who does local history while I was out there and said, well, sign this guy, his name is, um, his surname is King. And she said, no, he's not, he's not on there. So when I got back, she said, well, I, I got to the bottom of it because him and his family had moved from War Boys to London when, that, when he was quite young. So he's probably on a memorial somewhere in, um, in, in London, but actually he was born here and he on, in the exhibition, he's down as War Boys, you know? So that was really moving. And that was, that really brought it home as well. Um, so it's fascinating and you know you can just stop at places and often in the in the most ridiculous bits of odd bit of countryside there's like an information board telling you like Pilkin Ridge you know 300 British troops died here and um, you know 25 West Indians and some Irish folks and goodness knows what uh, and then we visited a there's a there's not many of them but you can visit some German cemeteries there's one at Landmark and um the German cemeteries are not run really by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. So Eric mentioned the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. I mean, these guys do a sterling job. Their vans are everywhere, and it seems to me like the perfect job in many ways. You know, they they go from cemetery to cemetery, and they take meticulous care of these gravestones. And, and it is really, really impressive, the work they put in. And it seems to be well-funded, and the um, the Belgian authorities, as they on every cemetery it says the land here is given you know in honor of the commonwealth soldiers who died liberating this from the germans and there seems to be no shortage of money to keep them up but the german cemeteries on the other hand are privately funded and no one no one seems to want to you know glorify them glorify them is probably the wrong word but they're not sort of remembered in the same way and they're and they're a bit <sighs> It's hard to put the, the I think they lack in funding you know they don't have like the equivalent of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission each soldier doesn't have its own little memorial stone like in the Commonwealth graves it's um, normally a bit of black marble or black stone and there might be two or three hundred names engraved on it on the floor and then you've got all these slabs going right across the field and it's kind of powerful in in its own way, but it's different, you know. So it's really interesting, you know. Although, like to be interestingly fair, like the the Commonwealth gravestones, you know, like yeah, everybody has one, but you know, like when you read them, what struck me is, you know, there's a little the little epitaph, a little like saying whatever. And they're this, to me they seemed because they were they were done right then and there like a lot of them mm, like they were buried yeah. within you know months or, yeah. or whatnot of their passing. It's like it's like the the poor folks who were you know doing all the engravings on these gravestones were just like pulling sayings out of a jar. You know, like one of them <laughs> just said, "Well done." Like it's so yeah. impersonal and horrid. Like this, yeah. This poor, well, of course this poor they would kid be. Who is probably a poor kid, yeah. fighting this stupid war. That was fought between cousins, yeah. you know, royalty cousins because of a bunch of like overlapping treaties because the French and the Germans at the time were spoiling for a fight because they didn't like the last fight they were in. 
you know, and so they're spoiling for an asinine fight between cousins and these poor kids from poor backgrounds get caught up in it and get buried in some field in France with the, with the phrase well done. Yeah. You know, yeah, no, I have you're strong right. words but, for that. Yeah. But it's of its time, isn't it? You know, it was of yeah. its time. And yeah, that's what you have to remember these days. It wouldn't say well done, I'm sure. You know? yeah. And a lot of them yeah. just, of course, they don't know. That just says is a Commonwealth soldier known only yeah. to God yeah. quite, off quite regularly. So, you know, you go around Bedford House Museum, which is the, next to Tyne Cot, which is where most of the Passchendaele dead are. And Tyne, Tyne Cot is a strange name, but it's um, it was named by the Northumberland regiment who were out there at the time because they thought that the german bunkers because the germans had a lot of time to build concrete bunkers so they'd actually they were well bedded in whereas the british didn't build any concrete bunkers because they saw it as defeatist you know it's it's if you built german if you built concrete bunkers that suggested you weren't going anywhere you were staying there you know let's um let's put our troops in 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 sodden trenches that don't that can't stay dry and um you know let them let them suffer and then yeah, let them much. run into machine guns, but so the Northumberland reg- regiment saw these um, these bunkers, and they, it reminded them of cottages that they'd see by the River Tyne. <laughs> so they called they it referred to as uh, they put signs that once had overrun this area. They just says here is Tyne Cottage, and it, it became the biggest, uh, big, the biggest um, grave site in northern France, Tyne Cot. And there's a little museum there now. And as you approach the museum, you just hear this disembodied lady voice, female voice, and it's really quite eerie. We just we arrived there, and there'd been there was a thunderstorm, and we and we, we were approaching the we're approaching the uh, exhibition area, and suddenly out of the the thunder was still rumbling in the background, which was rem- reminiscent of like yeah, I know it's not really, but you know you can imagine guns going off and things so we've got this thunder going in the background and then suddenly th- these voices of, of names and she's on a loop and she's just naming every single soldier that's buried there and just saying you know like bill smith so william through, like, Briggs. what uh what images did you make um well the first time and the second time it was pretty similar it was the landscape around um it was um some of if i saw some industrial buildings, um, some uh, bits of canals that now look lovely and pristine with wind turbines on them. But if you look back at the original photographs, it's just like hell on earth, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, some more abstract images at, uh, we went to Vimy Ridge. I mentioned Vimy Ridge. So Vimy, Vimy was um, um, fought over some high ground um and it wasn't part of the Ypres salient it was um uh it was on the western front but it wasn't part of the Ypres salient so vimy was um uh, was taken by canadian regiments in 1917 i think it was and um the whole area now there's this is um is a is a huge memorial to the dead really and there's this night in 1930 they built this memorial and you can google it the vimy ridge memorial and it's like these it's like twin towers with overlooking the flanders landscape at the edge of this memorial which is bright white sandstone maybe and there's this angel figure and she's standing on this wall and her, her clothes are draping down over the wall 
and she's looking out and she's meant to signify the sorrow of all the Canadian nations. And at the visitor centre, which is just brilliant, it's run by young Canadian students who get university students who get an opportunity to do a paid sort of internship. You know, there's a there's a course run by the Canadian government and you've got to be French speaking and uh, as well. So they get paid to come over here. They get given accommodation. They get a car. We've spent loads of time with one of the young ladies who took us underground into one of the tunnels. And then she's as we came up from the tunnel, she said, right, this is where this is where the Canadians came out in 1917 and they went up and the German front line was 20 yards over there and they went up into a hail of machine gun bullets and please, at this point, there's only me and Julia, there's no one else on this, I've got shivers going down my spine now. She said, you just need to be quiet now because we don't talk now. This point is just too, it's just too sad, you know. Mm-hmm. And you come up and then as you come up, you, they've, got the, they've, they've dug out the trenches and recreated them. And you can see the German lookout is just like 20 yards away where the machine guns were. And so these young Canadians are just, they're, they're a real credit to their country, these these youngsters. And uh, after we'd been around them, it was a really hot day. We spent the whole day at Vimy Ridge. Then we walked down to the memorial and we sat in the shade of the, of the stone. And this young Canadian lady came back. She she came back to just uh, to keep an eye on the memorial because folks vandalize it. <laughs> you know, Really? And so they just keep a watching eye on it. And she was telling us, um, you know, just talking about her life out there as a, as a student and the friends she's made and the, you know, what a powerful effect it's had on her, on her life really. So um, I didn't, I don't I didn't take any large, it was such a hot day. I, the large format camera stayed in the, in the car on that day, but I got, I got some pinhole shots and uh, some Holger, Holger pictures. So I had the Holger with me and pinhole camera for those times when, you know, you just can't have the large format camera with me all the time. I beg to differ on that. Simon, yeah. Well, question. you can, yeah, because you're carrying, <laughs> like, handheld things. But I did have that Calumet um, stand-up thing where you put your arms in, you know, and mm-hmm. to change change film. The first, and I'd not used it in anger before, and it, it was quite hot while we were there. And uh, because I'd not worked out a working system, I'd stuck things in there. And then, of course, as soon as I got my hands in there, I started sweating, you know, and the forehead was yeah. sweating. And But after I'd done it a couple of times, I worked out a system, you know. Maybe I should have worked out a system before I went out there and tried it in anger, but I didn't. So so that was quite useful. And then I've just – I've developed I – sh- I also shot four sheets of Ektar 100. Um, two of them were part of the project, really. Two weren't um, – Bedford House Cemetery, when I looked over the wall at Bedford House Cemetery, there was a, a wheat field with loads of poppies in. So I jumped over the wall, lowered myself down and put the camera quite low and did um, uh, some very shallow focus on some poppies moving in the wind. And and um, those negs look great. The colour negs look great and the black and white negs look great. I put a red filter on to try and make the the red stand out a bit more against the green uh, uh, against the green wheat. So I'm going to, um, I think, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to pull together the negatives from 2017 and from 2023. I've got, I'm going to print them all on 5x7 Ilford warm tone resin coated paper because I've just got a box of that. And so I'll have a series of these little prints to hold. And then I'm going to, um, nearly finished Simon, don't worry. Then I'm going to um, make some fiber prints and do some typed notes, you know, on my typewriter, because it's all analog, along with um, some 
excerpts from various books I've read or journeys we made on the time, my thoughts, and it'll just become a little box set of prints and notes for um for, for just for the family really. Simon. Cool. I was um, sorry. Eric was uh, was was trying to get me into the conversation so, was, so, several yeah. times. Right. I put my hand up. On the, um, well, I didn't. I only noticed it last time. Did you put yeah, your hand up somewhere else? Yeah, but, but it, was, it would he, help if we could see you, wouldn't it? I know, Instead of I the know. eye of Sarah, the eye of yeah. Simon. You know? Yeah, Simon. Yes, my. If I could my... see you, you know, I can tell. I had no idea if you were asleep or <laughs> hanging on to every word I've said. I can see Eric, but I can't see you. I need. I need a new. I need a new computer. Um, mm. As simple as that. It can't cope with doing doing video and all these other things at the same time, unfortunately. But uh, now I, I wanted to just 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 earlier on. I just wanted to when you were talking about the condition of the uh, German graves, mm. and um, and you and you can understand you know why they're not as well there's a there's a difference anyway yeah and yeah, uh yeah. but what um the other the other side of it is uh in southern staffordshire uh which is the county i live in in the uk uh there's a place called canic chase and it's a it's a large forested area um but within uh, that that area there's um and it's uh, run by the uh commonwealth uh Grace Commission, and uh, there's a German cemetery there, and it's uh, I believe it's uh, for German soldiers um, and internees, I believe, uh, for through both the, uh, the world wars, and um, and it's for people that uh, were were captured, I believe, and and died in in uh, in captivity, if you like, um, and. It's it's very different from what you're describing how the uh, the German graves are in in, in northern France, and mm. you can sort of understand that as well. Um, but it's um, but it's it's you know it's it's very well looked after. And incidentally, I was I was up there with a with a rolly cord, um, and I decided to take a few photographs, which I need to put out actually. And I'll be I'll be doing that soon. Although I won't put them into the uh, large format group, it's not well. I might do a single post and just pop them in there, so that we've uh, we've we've referenced them. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's again. It's one of those places that everything's very very quiet there. Even though it's like it's a busy area, you know, and there's car parks, there's people going out just to play in the woods and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it's just a really really peaceful space, um, and it's and it's just odd to see this 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 almost like a part of Germany in the in the middle of the Staffordshire countryside. Um, so uh, so there's that. Um, and uh, light, lightening things up ever so ever so slightly when you say about uh, uh, taking taking your Holger out to take photos. I mean, there, there are sometimes you know I think Eric could actually tell us he's taken a photograph with one of his made up lenses and then uh, actually just shot it with the Holger sometimes. So yeah, so uh, yeah, yeah, that, that could be a cheat's way. Well, to do I this. was um, I, I was over the years I've been sort of tempted to some degree to buy one of these Lomography Petzval bokeh control lenses is various yeah. iterations of them you know and there's um i got an email to say they're back in stock the 85 millimeter lovely black uh nikon f version 85 millimeter bokeh controls about 400 quid and i i put a post out saying oh kind of tempted me. i mean i haven't got the money anyway um but then i i started looking at um i went to see my friend jevon carey who's on twitter uh who lives uh, half a half an hour away in the fens and i i saw him back end of last week and i took my, i had my um i'd been to see ben mills to pick up some darkroom equipment and i stopped off at jevon to drop a load of magazines into him and he gave me one of his, his 
book he'd recently published on the fens and we, we sat there having coffee and he's um he's a lovely guy he's got he lives in this whole farmhouse with loads of land he and uh with a huge beard <laughs> and i said if i go and get my rolly flex and stick my Rollin R2 close-up filter. Can I shove it in your face and uh, <laughs> take a take a picture? And uh, he said, "Yeah, if you want." I said, "I'll do an, I'll do another one. You standing in your you standing in your polytunnel like an environmental portrait." And I had two frames of Portra 160 left, so I stuck the Rollin R2 on, which is a bit close. To, it takes the Rollin R1 takes your three three um, foot minimum focus and changes it into one and a half feet and the and the Roland and the Roland R2 takes it down to sort of half as much again so I don't know t- 10 inches or something it's pretty close but you, you know 10 inches to to a foot or something uh, so I had it on as close as I could and it, I was really <laughs> near his face and so the whole picture is like I've got one I, I and I was doing it handheld he said do you want a tripod I said no I said it's fine it's but tripods are for pussies so <laughs> I, I was and of course when you got that I, I, I was on on f8 um, because I think any wider and uh, nothing would have been in focus. And, and you get to that point where you can't really focus. You just sway your body slightly backwards and forwards. And at the point yes. when something appears to be in focus, you click, you click. And I've got one eye sharp, the other, and because I wasn't quite full on to his face, um, he's probably going to think it's way too close, but I think it's quite, it's quite interesting. And uh, I've only looked at the negative, but I've got this sort of fall off around the outside of the Roland R two does seem to generate some fall off as does my holger when i use it so i've decided now that i don't need to spend 400 quid on a on a lamography petzval 85 millimeter lens when i can just get something that i like equally as well with a rollinar and or and or a holger that's what i've told myself anyway <laughs> the other thing andrew have, have you not tried your like a projection lens with your bright lens caps what though it's it's sitting behind me i think yeah, but have you actually have you used it? Yes, um, not not really in anger in any project. Like I'd like to use it for portraits, um, but I've got that problem at the moment still of of pairing it up with the right sort of film to control. Ah, of course, yeah. You know, I've got no shutter really, have I? You know, you, you need the you, graphic, don't you? All yeah. The, the, the to be honest, to be honest, it's the only re- the only reason why I'd really want another four by five camera because i'm not really into accumulating four by five cameras is to get one with a focal plane shutter or to get um steve lloyd or someone else to just crack on and make some affordable shutter mechanism that you can stick to barrel lenses or these projector lenses so i've got it up there ready for a project i have had it on the camera um but i want to make it's just not easy for me to use at the moment until i get some more control over shutter well, the good the good news the good news is you can get something like a speed graphic or a micropress for roughly the similar kind of price, if not less, than that Petzfel uh, yeah. eighty five. Yeah, yep, yeah. And then that opens up you to so many wacky and wonderful lenses. It does. Yeah, you're right. No, you're right. Um, so, um, and it, and it's probably going to happen at some point. But you know, at the moment, any money I get each month, Julian, I don't know what other folks do about their funding their their hobby you know i mean i don't do enough workshops these uh, this year i haven't done enough workshops these though this year to really fund a lot i did last year that funded quite a bit of stuff but you know you go and buy a box of paper i mean i bought that box of five by seven paper resin coated and that was like 50 quid you know and if you want to go and i bought some eight nine and a half by 12 fiber warm tone paper that someone was selling on ebay because he didn't want it anymore and that, that was 60 quid but new it's like 
110 120 quid a box now you know for the warm tone stuff and you know you set yourself a budget every month for film and or paper and you can easily be doing you know you know either on film or paper and the money just goes you know so i struggle to put any aside to buy more gear uh, on the basis that i'd rather push that money into into darkroom stuff really you know Mm. i mean i was gonna say that um like there's the the graphics press cameras uh which is like which is like the micro press that diamond talks about um but i've really fallen in love with suiting like the graphics slrs you know the super d and whatnot so i can actually or for me the three a's because they allow me to shoot panoramic which i absolutely love shooting panoramics nowadays um because i can actually see what i'm shooting in real time like i don't have to ground glass it close it insert whatever like i can shoot it like Totally with you. Like, just, just, just to interrupt you there, that the scene George's four by four camera was um, a friend of mine who was with us yesterday, uh, Christopher Mackay, who's, who who uh, lent me his four by five Super D, uh, mm-hmm. which I, I decided it, it wasn't really for me. Um, really, and uh, whereas the the four by four, it's it'll still I'm pretty sure it's still capable of um, accepting something like an Aero Ektar. And uh, and all the other all the other things that might go with that, they're going to be easier easier to handle. But that to me seemed like a a really sensible uh, way way forward with this. And as you say, you know, you can see what you're doing, and you can press the button, which you just can't do that on the MicroPress or or a speed graphic, and it, yeah. it's massively restricting. So I mean, so that, I think that's the way I want to go myself. You can if you've got a lens that's mated to the rangefinder. Right, yeah. they, they, they used to use them in that manner, but it's just difficult when you're when you're modifying, you're like kludging exactly. a lens on. Like you're not, it, it's a much different beast. And you can change out. There's cams inside those rangefinders that will change the focal lengths, and they work brilliantly. And there's a couple different places you can pick those up, um, but it, it requires a bit of work. It's not the same thing as just like staring right down, like this is what I've got. Cool. Well, I've given I've given it a go because uh, the, I mean it's different. The speed graphic and the MicroPress they they use a different cam system. They both use cams, but they're not they're not the same. Right. And I've I've given it a go with the uh, the MicroPress one, and uh, and I thought to myself, well, okay, instead of trying to make one that that works with an Aero Ektar, let's try and make the one that works with the lens that belonged with the camera, um, along with and and they matched as well with the MicroPress. They've got the uh, the serial number of the lens is also on the on the cam, so you know that the two are actually mated together. Uh-huh. Um, which also tells you something in its own right that you know that, that certain lenses are going to be ever so slightly different from the next lens, which is sort of worrying really. Um, but anyway, I tried to replicate one uh, in in three D printing to be exactly the same as the one that I've already got. So I'm thinking, well, if I can replicate that, then I can take this further because I can start to learn what kind of um, pitch and drop or whatever is, is going to be on this cam to make it make it focus with an Aeroector, for instance. And I, yeah. I couldn't even manage to make it match the existing lens with a with a cam that I could use as a template. I just couldn't do it. Really? No. What was so hard about it? I mean, is it just like it just wouldn't work? It was just out. Yeah, because it's it's you know it's just it's fractions, it's tiny amounts that that will throw the focus yeah. out. It's as simple as that. Yeah, fair. I can't remember the name of the. I'll have to see if I can find it. I know there's at least one or two places that that sell Graflex cams. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, well, I, I assume to some degree, yeah, it's going to be close enough. 
Um, yeah. and, and you would hope that one aero hectare is the same as another aero hectare. But seeing that, I say MPP now, whether or not they were just over over overcompensating things by making an individual one for an individual lens, I don't know. But the fact that they did it suggests to me that there's a there's a good reason for doing so. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that is a challenge, though. Um, and I just like, especially for the work that I do, typically, um, action photography or cycling or whatever, I just really, really like being able to shoot as I go and not have to stop and flip it up and stare at the ground glass. For portraits, that's fine, but f- for everything else, it's just yeah. it's just really difficult. You know? Yeah. yeah. But eh. Holger. The Holger is the answer to everything, Eric, because it weighs nothing, <laughs> right? What certainly the one I've got gives a beautiful sweet spot in the middle. Okay, you've got to have your subject in the middle, okay, and you maybe don't yeah. like that, but then you just find a Holger where the sweet spot is off to the side somewhere, and um, you've got one camera, right? One loaded with HP five, one film stock. You know, you're not lugging pounds and pounds of gear on your bike, and there you go. Yeah, but the Holger doesn't have. I've actually been tempted to take the Holga panoramic. I think there's a Holga 614, right? Mm, 612. Yeah, and 612. There's, a, there's one with a lens as well. There's, there's yeah. a Holga, um, which, which was really hard to find. And I think there must have been a load of new old stock found or something because um, B&H, I think, had a, 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 t- a shed load of them for sale. And I think you can you can find them more regularly now, but you couldn't for a time. You couldn't get a 6x12 lensed, lensed Holga. Right. You but to take one of those and then, like, take off the pinhole or take off hmm. their yeah. lens and use it as a platform. Yeah, right. yeah, that's sensible. Um, well, I was going to say, but, uh, Steve Lloyd of Chroma, he's started to uh, make a 617 camera now. Yes. Yeah, so, but still, the thing with those, again, is that they're still zone focus, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, like, the ability to look through and see a live image and have a mirror reflex yes. is... Yeah, I mean, yeah. you pay for it with the Graflex SLRs because they are right. They're big, they're bulky, they're beastly, and because they're old, mm. they're prone to failure in the field, um, which is the biggest challenge. Um, and now, actually, there's something I also wanted to mention in the on that topic. It was like, you know, Graflex repair shops and whatnot, and um, whatnot is that here in the states, one of the one of the handful of them, um, 20th century camera, had a fire. Uh, who I was actually going to send my three A's to because the people who work on the graphics three A's, they're weird little cam- they're weird cameras. Not ma- there weren't many of them, and they're they're built differently than other graphics. So folks who are willing to take one apart and work on one and put it back together are pretty rare. Um, but he had a fire, and so he has a for the folks out there um, in large format land who do a lot of graphics stuff. If you want to support one of the rare graphics repair folks who also does accessories and all sorts of stuff uh jeff perry has a there's a fundraiser to get him going back again because like everything burned like his whole workshop went away uh which is really really heartbreaking so um he's um he's going through a rough time isn't he he's um, cancer cancer diagnosis um doesn't doesn't quite keep doesn't quite clear up so i know he's living with some relatives now because at one point he was kipping in his car you know it's just some kind of horror story, really. Yeah. So we'll we'll throw that in the notes, but you know, mm. um, much much. He's, he's always been very kind. He answers all sorts of random questions for me all the time about that graphics stuff and repair and the three A and uh, you know 
yeah, where to try the invitation. And... He's been super helpful with, uh, with Dave Shrimpton as well, I think, and helped him out a lot. Yep. Yeah. So um, I just wanted to circle back around to that before we finished up today. Throw, throw the man some love. Mm. Absolutely. And I'll I, try and, and I... find the link because he has got a fund. I think the, yeah. the fundraiser platform he was using, because I think he didn't have an active bank account or something. It was something, it was some, if you're outside the USA, I don't think it's easy to donate to it. He was running out on Venmo. And I think he yeah. it, that the fire, mm. that the workshop was attached to his house and the house didn't burn down. So I'm not exactly sure his current state um, of things, but he was running well, a Venmo. Home, no, he's, he, was, he was homeless for a while. Well, he still is homeless, I think. Hmm. That I would not find it. Hmm. I'll have to check that out. I wasn't, I didn't know about that. Um, but it's the American healthcare system for you, isn't it? You know? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, there's that for sure. It's awful. Um, yeah, you're right. Last few weeks I've been living in my car. Well, he's living with his niece now, I think. She's taken, and he says he's, um, he's felt, he's feeling more supported and loved and cared for now than. Pretty much any time in the last, you know, year or so. Yeah. I don't think he wanted to reach out to her, you know. I don't think perhaps she realized he was in such a desperate state. But since he did reach out to her, she's been very kind and accommodating. Yeah, it looks like uh, as of July 1st, so yesterday, he just had another surgery yeah. um, to remove another tumor. So, yeah, it's, uh, lots of love to you, Jeff. Simon, yeah. are you gonna are you gonna try and end on a high note? Yeah, sorry uh, about that. <laughs> no, well, well, no, that's 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 important. But uh, it is important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, we all. I think we're definitely in in, in wind down mode. Uh, mm-hmm. so, uh, Andrew, you need to go and drive your Tesco truck very very soon, don't you? I do. Yeah. So, uh, um, <laughs> which which means that um, we we're not going to have time for uh, a discussion that we may have had um, uh, with, with with Eric about uh, the wonders of uh, artificial intelligence and photography. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> we'll see by ranting on that. Exactly. So uh, I think I think uh, if I'm correct in thinking, you you you're absolutely fine with AI, aren't you, Eric? Um, so oh, well, we should yeah. get Shane. We'll get Eric and Shane Balkovich to um, debate it. Yeah. No, no, because I'm not fine with it, and. Neither is he. No, I so. <laughs> Common ground then, Eric. Eh? That's not a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm okay with that on on some levels, but not on not on the creative levels. We'll just say mm-hmm. not on the, the the create images level. No, no. no. Well, uh, yeah. So we'll, we'll we'll leave that for this time. Who knows? We might we <laughs> might get might get into that one uh, in, in a future episode. So um, uh, let's go straight into shout outs then, because we've already we've already given our email address out. We've already done coffee thank you. So uh, let's go shout outs and then we can get out of here. So, uh, Andrew, have you got any shout outs? Well, only a person who's been very kind, um, Peter, a gentleman called Peter Neal, contacted me a while ago, actually. And he sent me a reference about a World War One. Well, I think he was a World War One photographer, or he does what I've been doing, going back and shooting World War One sites, and I'm really not sure because I've tried Googling the heck out of him just recently again, and I, all I get is Cartier watches. So there's this guy <laughs> called J.C. Cartier uh, and his World War One photos. Um, so Peter reached out and says, I mailed you a while ago about J.C. Cartier and his World War One photos. Are you still shooting 5x4? If so, this is the interesting bit, I have some film you might be interested in. Is it possible to phone you, Peter? So anyway, Peter's bio, bio is um, 
and I, I chatted to him the other day, yesterday or the day before. Used to be course director, BA Ons Photography, Ulster University, Belfast. Cool. Just, just an artist now. And he, he's been going to um, uh, Renault Cartres de Arles, so the Arles Photography Festival in France, which I've loved. I just, I've had a thing about in my head to go to for 20 years. He's been going since 1989. So when I rang him, we had a long chat about his life as a as a course director the type of people he's had through um uh, the the um mix between digital and it, it'd make an interesting guest actually um okay. at some point and uh, but then he said at the end he said and i've got all this um i'm sure he said he's got 50 75 sheets of uh fujichrome four by five film he says do you um is it any use to you? I said, well, yeah, I said, I says, it is. I've not shot any four by five um, chrome film before. I've done uh, plenty of 35 mil. Um, I think mainly because it, it's knowing what to do with a finished product apart from looking at it and, and going, holy and, cow. And, and going, this is lovely, you know? Yeah. I mean, I can't even scan it easily, not with my current gear, but I'm thinking, okay, well, let's see what he sends me. And I'll find a project to use some of it, and then I'll find a way of digitizing it somehow with, you know, with some help from buddies. Um, and then I'll probably pass some of it on, you know, depending on how much I get and whether it's still. He says it's been in his fridge since he's had it, apart from one or two times when it's not been in his fridge when they've like moved house and stuff. Um, so that was really nice. So I give it. So Peter is a. Uh, I, um, I mentioned the LFPP. Peter, I um, can't remember whether you said you'd listen to it or not or you were just being nice um but you can find peter on twitter and he's at p-i-e-r-r-e-n pierre is that right yeah pierre n so he's, oh that'd be his french yeah because he says he's a huge fan of the Arles photo festival um which he's been going to since 1989 he says he books his accommodation in january the same place he goes to, and he just loves being in that vibe of creativity for the two weeks, um, red wine and photography and sunshine. <laughs> so and, it's the red uh, wine and photography. And I think it happens in early July for a couple of weeks. Um, and I guess Arles is to the southern part of France, but I, I've probably looked it up before, but I can't actually remember where it is. So, yeah, shout out to Peter. Very nice chap. And because he's also sending me some large format slide film. Did uh, you just use your new copy table for that? With a, say um, again? Didn't you just use the copy table? The yeah, copy I've got, I don't have a digital camera. Oh, any, that's right. That is limiting. Got it. Yeah. Fair. So I could probably get something capable that's not going to break the bank with I just ask some people who know about things like Simon. He'd probably, that time has probably got something you could sell me. <laughs> I've got a copy stand that I picked up that's behind me now. So I've now got that I tried to give to Simon a copy stand and a sous vide heater that I picked up the other day. They're both sitting behind me. Um, so I've I've got the copy stand, I guess, um, or I could use a pixelatory thing, couldn't I? And uh, and a digital camera or a, a push. I could use my phone and one of these um, this new Lomography setup thing. I don't know. Or you could, or you it bores it bores me witless all this scanning stuff and digitizing, which Listen, is what. Or you could just send it, you could send them to a friend. I could, yeah. yeah. And if well, if I've got a project like where I've got like a dozen slide films that I need digitizing, I could send them to a friend to do it for me, couldn't I? Yeah. There we go. There you go. Sorted. Okay. Good. 
Eric. Yeah. Yes. Shout outs. <laughs> um, well, it's been a long six months, so I think mostly to, um, although they don't listen to the podcast, but still John and Josh at The Radivist for continuing to publish my stuff uh, and it's like take on all the weird projects that I constantly pitch them. Um, it's it's rare to in the cycling in the cycling media world. Um, it's rare to have publications that will take the kind of work that I do and pay for it. Um, so those two in particular have been just really really great. Um, and then Mike Kitchenberry, the, the editor of, of Mountain Flyer, as well on that. Um, and then just in general, everybody who's been uh supportive like you guys and, and everybody else over the last couple of months since i i lost the day job um it's been a a weird up and down kind of time so um i just appreciate the entire the entire community around me both in uh, photography and cycling and friends and and everybody else so um and always my my now wife we're married Got married in February. Oh yeah, uh, you were going to invite us to the wedding when we last. Oh, you're going to get you guys are getting invited when one we last wedding spoke to you. You're going to yeah, you're going yeah. to invite us to your second wedding, not, not to a second <laughs> woman, but you know your no, second, no, not second, second woman. No, no, we're not second we're not breakfast. We, we don't do that. Um, second <laughs> breakfast, <laughs> very Hobbit thing. Second breakfast, uh, third lunch. Um, so yeah, as always, Heather, because you know, yeah. congratulations. I I Thank you. Yeah. I think I probably did wish you congratulations at you the did. time, but I've completely did. forgotten. Yeah. You cad, you never did. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I, I've got uh, one shout-out in particular, and that's to Brian Truman. Um, and Brian Truman is, uh, as we call him, the leader uh, at the Six Towns Darkrooms Club. And uh, he's the chap that um, kept the, the Darkroom Club going while there was, literally he was the only member. Um, and uh, I rang him up one day and uh, said when when could i come along to the dark room club and he goes well whatever day you like <laughs> yeah it was, that's pretty much how, uh, how how busy it was and um and from that day it's um it's still been going and uh yeah i think we've got usually have around about seven people turn up every every week uh on a tuesday night by the way in stoke-on-trent so uh but more to the point um Brian is uh, an enthusiastic uh, photographer analog photographer and digital photographer um and he's been wholly against and having no interest whatsoever in large format photography uh, ever since I've known him. And then last weekend, he, he rang me up. Well, no, he didn't ring me up. He sent me a message on the messenger, and I was a little bit slow to get it, to respond to it. Um, and um, he then he sent me another message to say, I've bought an Intrepid Mark IV. Oh, and nice. I was thinking, what? <laughs> Not so much about the fact he bought the Intrepid, but the fact he just bought a large format camera full stop um and he was just completely out the blue and i think he just had enough of the rest of us and i mean i think just about everybody that goes there is actually a large format photographer um in our, in our club which i think is pretty, you know there's a percentage number of uh, members to a darkroom club that's a pretty damn good percentage um yeah. and now he's he's finally relented uh, to to the people we'd actually given up on him uh, frankly, but now he's he's seen the light and he's he's got a uh, he's got an Intrepid Mark IV. He's very happy with it. Um, I've lent him a couple of lenses. I've just made him a another lens board for another lens. I'm going to lend him as well. And he's it's it's just like it's like he's starting off in photography again, uh, which is which is brilliant. And have you told him he's got 64 episodes of the LFPP to catch up on? 
Well, th- yeah. this is a, this is the thing. I mean, this is the first time I think I've done a shout out for Brian, and he's not listened to any episode. He doesn't listen to any podcast, and he'll mm-hmm. and who knows whether he'll ever find out about this. But the shout out, so I won't tell him. I'll wait till somebody else tells him, perhaps. Uh, so we'll we'll be surprised that if he ever does actually listen that uh, that we've mentioned him. So uh, well done, Brian, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, we're we're very pleased that you're uh, going to join us on this journey. Um, Welcome to the fold, sir. Welcome to the fold. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, Andrew, um, away from this podcast, how can people keep up with the things that you do? Uh, On the Twitter, most commonly, and a little bit of Instagram. So you can just use my name, Andrew Bartram or Warboy Snapper. Both on the Twitter and the Instagram will find me. Um, You can look in the show notes and get links to those and also to uh, my blog, which... I, I go through fits and starts of updating that. Um, so andrewbartram.wordpress, maybe, something like that. And, uh, oh, the Lensless podcast as well. So at the moment, that's just me keeping that baby afloat. Um, uh, so, yeah, about 130-odd episodes of the Lensless podcast to go and listen to for all things pinhole and a bit of Holger. And there's, a, and there's a bit of large format going on in there as well. So mm-hmm. uh, I've, I've, I've listened to a few episodes recently. Yeah, I think Michael. we might uh, we might cross cross over with some do some podcast crossover guesting. Um, if you, yeah. what I mean is contact some of those guests we've had on the lensless who are into a bit of large format to come on and talk about their yeah interests. Well, you've had recently you've had uh, Mike Walker. Uh, yeah, it took yeah. me ages to get him to come on. About four yeah. years, really. Mm. Four I years, think, yeah. That's some perseverance, man. Yeah. So there you go. That's all. That's all good. So, uh, Eric, um, how can people keep up with the things that you do? Um, pretty much still Instagram is the ready steady. One of these days, I need to update. I've been, I've been given a minor telling off by one of our our guests, Nicole White of the the Rolls and Tubes Collective. Um, that I desperately need to update my website. So one of these days I'll do that. But right now it's still uh, Instagram. So Eric, E-R-I-K-H-M-A-T-H-Y on Instagram. And sorry, Nicole, I will update my website soon. Okay. And uh, finally, I'm on Twitter as Simon Fall. That's Simon and F-O-R. I'm on Instagram as Simon Forster Photographic, which is also the name of my website. Uh, if you stick uh, uk at either end of those of, of that word, um, where you can buy lots of lens caps. Yeah, the largest Beautiful lens caps. They had the largest collection of lens caps in the mm. world. In the world. In the world. Available for sale, at least, anyway. The ones for the Reveni... Oh, the Reveni spot meter, uh, which I use exclusively during my world, my 11 days in France is was a delight and it was made even more so by the pro black uh, caps that came from simon for photographic or whatever he just said and um the rather neat little battery adapter that now, it now runs on triple a batteries instead of um lr44s so and it worked beautifully and i highly recommend mr Beckberger's um matt's uh <laughs> Have I just butchered his name? Anyway, you know, Matt's uh, Mr. Raveni Lab. Yes, Beck Beckberger. What's yeah. it, Beckberger? Yes, Beck, I don't know. Uh, I think that's, a, I just, I think that's what I show. just said. Yeah, I know, but it doesn't mean yeah. I can pronounce his surname. Um, <laughs> so I highly recommend that. And he's very good. And he's, um, I think, the latest firmware um, 
does away with any lingering. There was a few sort of lingering things. That, well, basically, when he finds things that people tell him things aren't working properly or tweaks that need doing, he updates the firmware and sends you a link on an email, and it's very easy to update. And, 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 uh, not, and not just fixing faults. He, you know, he adds functionality that yeah. Know, is, yeah, which is which is great. Yeah. Okay, well that's 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 it for that. Uh, finally, let's thank uh, Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com uh, for his excellent theme music, uh, mm. just uh, playing right now, uh, Two Finger Johnny, um, and that's it. So, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I would say this week's podcast, but you know, you never know when it's going to be before we're back. <laughs> um, but uh, so, um, I hope you've enjoyed uh, today's show, and we will be back, and we will endeavour to make it. I don't know. Should we should we try and set a goal of doing more than three shows in one year? Yes, I think we should. Uh, yes, I think. I don't yeah. think that's that hard to do. No, it's just we've, we've got one more and we're on target, and two more and we've hit the exactly. Hit the that's it. So we're going to we're gonna go. We'll go for gold. So uh, go, goodbye, everyone. <laughs> Bye. See ya.